We've been seeing examples of these men and women of the past. And we know that it is essential for a reason. We know that faith is not merely an intellectual ascent. In fact, it, it has penetrated the heart. And as it has, it will work itself out in everyday life. And the faith that is being described here is a working faith. A faith that perseveres. A genuine faith. A faith that knows that at the end of days, we will hear, well done, what? Good and faithful servant. Conversely, drifting has a destination. One's confidence in Christ, or you might say the lack thereof, has consequences. And there will be many people at the end of days who say, but didn't I fill in the blank? prophesy in your name, believe in your name, walk the aisle, pray a prayer, and yet they will hear, depart from me, I never knew you. Hebrews is not a book about uh, losing one's salvation. It is about a coach talking to a small congregation that he loves dearly who has started to drift. They're no longer holding on to the anchor of their soul. Persecution is pressing in. And as a result, they feel like letting go of this tension might reduce some of the tension in their lives. What they don't realize is, as we continue to say, if they continue to drift, they will drift away. And that drifting away will prove that their faith was never genuine. And so this preacher wants this little congregation to understand that genuine faith will stand in opposition to the world. That's what we signed up for. We don't look for it, but it will find us. Genuine faith will draw fire, and we're not to be taken by surprise. If the world hated Christ, the world will hate us. The question is, will our faith persevere? Will our faith obey, even when times get tough? And will we take these truths from the first century and apply them to the 21st century? Will we, Metro Bible, embrace, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, being fools for Christ? I mean, I'm just going to go ahead and put it right out there now. What we're talking about in persevering amid persecution is being thought of as a fool, a fool for Christ. That's what we're going to see in many of these cases, especially today with a man named Noah. Noah was a fool, but for all the right reasons. You know, many of you know Joy's favorite book is Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, if she hasn't told you, you'll know it once you get to our house. And she even has a picture of John Bunyan on the bookshelf. She loves this book. She reads it every year, at least once a year. And many of you may know the story. You may have read it. You may have even known that John Bunyan spent time in jail. What you may not know is why. It starts with understanding that in 1593, according to the Conventicle Act, it became illegal to hold a religious service outside a state-authorized parish. This means you couldn't even hold a small group or any sort of time with other believers. 
Certainly, it also meant that any sort of open-air preaching was illegal. And so, he was convicted. Albeit a kangaroo court, no jury, no witnesses, and sentenced to three months in prison. Now, an English prison in the 16th century is, is no uh, five-star resort. It's rough. He did what he could to, to, to try to put food on the table for his family. He even had a blind daughter he tried to provide for. And so he made shoelaces and would sell them. But freedom came knocking at his door at the end of three months on one condition. Obey men rather than God. You want out? We'll let you out. You've served your sentence. Promise that you will not preach anymore. The question is, can genuine faith promise that? Of course, the answer is no. And so John Bunyan said, I cannot leave, for I cannot quit talking about these things. And three months would eventually turn into 12 years. 12 years. And it is during this time that he would preach from his prison window to a wall where he could not see anyone. And yet God used this and it would reverberate from that wall and out to the listeners who would come to hear him. God gave him a ministry even from prison, and it is during these 12 years being incarcerated that he would also write Pilgrim's Progress, which became the best-selling book next to the Bible for several hundred years. Genuine faith obeys. It doesn't merely agree with a set of facts. It doesn't even have a heartfelt commitment. It goes beyond that. Genuine faith obeys, and it obeys reverentially. Genuine faith chooses to be a fool for Christ. And that's what this early church, most likely in Rome, who has started to become complacent and distance themselves, even forsaking the assembling together, that's what they need to hear. Not just buck up under persecution, not just hang in there, but embrace being a fool for Christ. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Take that faith God has given you and take it out for a spin. Put some muscle behind it. It's a very masculine story we hear today about Noah, and one that is probably well beyond what you've heard in Sunday school. It's a story this little Hebrew church needs to hear. It's not a foolish story. It's a story of a fool. A fool for Christ. And most importantly, it's a story we need to hear. Would you pray with me? And we'll dive into the text. Gracious Father, we come before you this morning as a body of believers excited, hungry, anxious. We've lifted our voices to heaven in song, in reverential gratitude for what you have done for us. You have saved us out of the slave market of sin. You have purchased us through the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, and you have put us into service. We have not yet undergone persecution, but we can see the clouds forming on the horizon. We need to be equipped today, Lord, 
And the best way to be equipped is not through behavior modification or, or pounding our chest or, or saying that we can just endure, but it is lifting our eyes towards our great high priest, Jesus Christ. Understanding that it is through his person and work that we are not only saved, but it is through his current person and work as the superior, eternal high priest who intercedes for his church that we can endure. And not just endure, but thrive. That we can see that our calling, as we all have been called as believers, is one that can embrace difficult decisions, choosing to obey God rather than men, choosing to preach amid adversity, even though we don't have a pulpit, preaching to love deeply others because someone was willing to preach the gospel to us. Father, stir our affections this morning through voices of the past that though Noah dead still speaks And though this first century church is long gone, we can learn from this letter that went to them because your word is timeless. It is inerrant. It is infallible. It is inspired. And it strengthens our faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Give our faith muscles today. Give our faith strength today. Teach us how our faith is to reverentially obey. Teach us to obey like Noah. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, look at verse 7 with me, if you will, and then we'll dive back into Genesis. Verse 7 seems to break into three parts, and that will guide us through our time today. The first part By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. Write down reverence of obedient faith. Reverence of obedient faith. And we're going to break that apart when we look at Genesis chapter 6. And then it says, by which he condemned the world. That's our second point. Reputation of obedient faith. Reputation of obedient faith. And then finally, and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Those are the results of obedient faith. All of these things we are not only called to do, but will experience as believers if we have genuine faith. Now, how can I say that? Because not everyone is going to have as difficult of a life as a Noah or as this first century church. And yet, God will not leave our faith in a weak estate. He who began a good work in you will, what? Complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be, what? Persecuted. Okay? It may not be as difficult as martyrs of the past, but your faith will be tested. And if it is genuine, it will, watch this, persevere. We will stumble. 
But God loves his children, and like a loving father, he will discipline us, he will draw us back, he will pick us up, and he will send us on forward. We will persevere. Genuine faith perseveres. That's not just an old Puritan doctrine, perseverance of the saints. That is Bible. The faith that God gives us at salvation is the faith that endures through us at sanctification, through sanctification, until one day we are glorified. So let's take this first part, reverence of obedient faith. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about the things not yet seen, that's the first part, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. There there seems to be two aspects of this reverential, obedient faith. Obedient faith sees, so imagine binoculars here, sees what others cannot. If faith is the gift of God, and we know that it is from Ephesians 2, then the faith that God gives us allows us to not only understand the higher things of God, but it allows us to believe it as though it were in real time. What's the first verse in chapter 11? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, or the conviction of things not seen. It's as good as done. It may not have come our way yet, but it's already passed by the throne of God. It is as good as done. And so obedient faith as a believer sees what others cannot, sees what the world cannot. But it's even more than that, because there's that second part. In reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. Obedient faith also works where others will not. It sees what others cannot, and it works where others will not. Faith is not something we give God, but something God gives us. And as a result, it does what we would not do do in our own nature. But as we are new creations, endowed with the gift of faith, a working faith, it bows the knee to Christ, it trusts His plan, and then it actually moves forward. Turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 5. We're going to mainly look at chapter 6, but we're going to start in 5. Genesis chapter 5. Let me bring us up to speed. We've seen the rise in civilization, but with that, we've also seen a decline in morality. Last week, we learned about the faith of Enoch. Enoch, who lived 65 years, and then something happens. Something happens. He has a baby boy. You don't often think of Methuselah as a baby boy, but he was, and he was probably called Baby Methuselah, all right? Baby Methuselah was born, and God seems to get hold of this man's heart at the young age of 65. And it says, Enoch walked with God. Walked with God for how long? You remember? 300 years. And we oftentimes think from our Sunday school days, he walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. As though, as I mentioned last week, like he started to just kind of walk in the air and didn't die. That's not what this is talking about. Certainly he was taken. He did not see death. But he walked with God. 
For 300 years, he prophesied and proclaimed the truth of God. You see, you're meant to understand that you have these two rivers going forth from Eden. After the death of Abel, we have the ungodly line of Cain. And we have the godly line of Seth. And we see long life with the line of Seth. And over and over again with Cain, we see, and he died. And so and so died. And yet we see civilization rising and morality declining. And then we see through this godly line, Enoch. And Enoch has Methuselah. And it's as if Enoch prophetically names Methuselah. Methuselah's name is made up of the Hebrew word death and seems to mean when he dies, judgment. When he dies, judgment. Now everyone knows of the curse from Genesis 3.15. They know that God has promised to make right what Adam and Eve made wrong. And now things start to get a little more specific. God is growing weary of the violence and the corruption in the earth. And so Methuselah is given a prophetic name. Methuselah, in turn, give you a little genealogy, has a son named Lamech. And Lamech has a son, look at chapter 5, verse 29, named Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. The ground has been cursed as a result of the sin of man, but God is going to give us nuach, rest, through this boy. And Noah is Methuselah's grandson. Methuselah lives 969 years when he dies judgment, and he dies in the year of the flood. Not because of the flood, but before the flood. And so we see Noah here. Noah grows up in a world, a dark world, bent on tyranny against the Creator King. And yet he stands out like a lighthouse of truth. In a sea of chaos, Noah is immovable. He loves God. He leads his family well. He is reverentially obedient. This first century Hebrew church needs a Noah in their life. They've got their ten chapters of systematic theology, and that is necessary. And now they need a Noah to point to. Because what are they complaining about? It's 64 AD. Again, they're probably a small house church in Rome. They're Jews who have converted and believed that Jesus is the Messiah. They were excited about their faith. They witnessed about their faith. They would gather together on a Sunday evening. They would sing praises. They would sit under the Word of God. They would celebrate the Lord's table. They were bold about it, and now something's happened. He would not say, meaning the preacher, do not forsake the assembling together if they had not forsaken the assembling together. They're starting to skip church. They're starting to lose connection with one another. They're starting to not care so much. The thought is, if I can relieve a little bit of this pressure, a little bit of this connection, the world won't come against me so much. My, my parents won't come against me so much. Remember, they're Jews. They've been alienated, excommunicated from their synagogue. 
As we've talked about, they've probably lost their business in the Jewish quarter. They've lost their friends and family. They need a Noah. They need someone who says, I will stand because what I'm seeing, even though it hasn't happened, is absolutely true. Things have gotten so bad in Noah's time, God says, enough. Look at chapter 6, verse 7. The Lord says, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to the birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 13, God says to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. And God speaks to Noah. Long before Genesis was ever written, God speaks to Noah audibly. And he says, you've heard judgment is coming. You've heard your great-grandpappy tell you that's why he was named that. I'm telling you, it's real. And it's coming soon. We know that from verse 7. He'd been warned by God in Hebrews chapter 11. Noah really believes it. I mean, he really believes it. We think about that like, well, of course Noah believed it. But what if you were Noah? Things had always been like this. How do you know it was God talking to you? I mean, though you believed, I mean, this is, this is a big prophecy here, right? Everything's going to die. Man to creeping things. Every, God's going to wipe out everything. And yet it is so real to him that he really believes it. I imagine him sitting around the dinner table one evening with his wife and Ham, Sham, and Japheth. And they're eating, and he says, um, Hey guys, God, God spoke to me. You've all seen the corruption in the world. You see the violence on a daily basis. You know that the ungodly line of Cain has become a stench in the nostrils of God. In fact, you even know our own family tree, how many of our aunts and uncles and cousins have walked away from the faith. It is only your great-grandpappy Methuselah and your granddaddy, my granddaddy Lamech, that still believes. And God told me, judgment is coming soon. The prophecy will be, be fulfilled. I want you guys to believe this with me and follow me. And after this dramatic speech to his sons and his wife, I can imagine his kids being dutiful, respectful. Yeah, yeah, Dad, we, we, yeah, we believe you. We're not like those people out there. Uh, we, we believe that God has spoken to you. We believe judgment is coming. Could you pass the matzah? Because it's one thing to believe it in your head, right? And it's quite another thing to move forward. Tommy Nelson used to say, God doesn't steer parked cars. We have to move forward. And I can imagine Noah saying, I'm not finished. And he clears the table and he unrolls blueprints. Let me tell you what God told me to do. And he shows them a ship. We're going to build this. 
God is going to destroy the world. And here is the ark of salvation. So, Noah and Sons is canceling all current projects, and we're going into the shipbuilding business. Now are you boys with me? Because it's one thing to believe in your head, it's quite another thing to pull out a hammer and devote the next 120 years of your life to building a ship in the middle of the ancient Near East when the Mediterranean is hundreds of miles away. Are you starting to feel it? This Hebrew church needs this kind of working faith. This kind of stick to Make for yourselves an ark, verse 14. Make the ark with rooms. This is how you shall make it, verse 15. You shall make a window in the ark, verse 16. Make, 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 make. Obedient faith not only sees what others cannot, it works where others will not. And guess what? Noah and his boys and his wife start building an ark. Amid persecution, amid a dark, tyrannical world, they start to press on. They persevere in their faith. Now again, I'm going to keep drawing us back to the first century, this little Hebrew church. What dark, tyrannical world do they live in? By the way, who is the emperor in AD 64? You remember? Nero. Are you, are you seeing the connection? In a world filled with violence, God has promised that judgment is coming, but only for those who come into the ark of salvation, who really believe and stay the course. The preacher to the Hebrews says, hold fast to the anchor of your soul. Do not drift, because drifting has a destination. Look at verse 22. Thus Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. So he did. Moses, who's writing this, didn't forget that he said he did. He's, he's making a point here, isn't he? Noah's faith is obedient. Noah's faith works. It obeys rather than delays. Imagine if Noah had delayed. Yeah, yeah, I know judgment's coming. I know you've told me to do this. I'm going to go ahead and finish these other projects first. We're going to transition by the third quarter of next year, and we'll start to study shipbuilding, right? And then he's too late. No, no, no. Delayed obedience is disobedience. He obeys. Let me describe this this uh, building project, this, this opportunity to work out his faith for you. God commands Noah to build a floating casket, if you will, okay? A wooden casket, 450 feet long, so a football field and a half long, by a football field wide, about 75 feet wide, by 45 feet high. This is 238 feet longer than the largest wooden boat ever built. I don't think that what we see on the flannel graph of Noah being a short, fat, dumpy, kind of pudgy guy is, is what we have in Scripture. You try logging every day for 120 years. This dude's ripped, okay? He's got guns like some, some sort of Oregon, you know, logger. He is tough. He, he's got sinew. He's, he's got muscle. Let me read to you the technical 
dimensions of this because it's hard for us to understand cubits, right? Quote, a vessel of such dimension would have a displacement, displacement of about 20,000 tons and a gross tonnage of about 14,000 tons. Its carrying capacity equaled that of 522 rail cars, each of which can hold about 240 sheep. Only 188 cars would be required to hold about 45,000 sheep-sized animals, leaving three trains of 104 cars, each for food, Noah's family, and range for the animals. Today, it is estimated that there are 17,500 species of animals, making 45,000 a likely approximation of the number. And no rudder. God would steer it. This first century church, when you reference Noah, who's going to know Noah better than Jews? They know. They make the connection. They realize their own life in comparison to Noah. And you know what? The original audience, the Israelites, who Moses wrote this to in 1445, they got it. As well, the deja vu was overwhelming. Remember, the Hebrew word for ark is also used in Exodus and translated basket, something that a baby Moses was put in to go through the water to escape judgment. And not only that, these two million Israelites who had just left Egypt understood that they went through the Red Sea on dry land and that water judgment was exercised against Pharaoh and his army. And they had been saved on the other side. They get it. Faith is putting one foot in front of another because you can see it so clearly, you know it's real. The question is, would this first century church, would Metro Bible, will we see Christ as the ark of our salvation in order to avoid judgment? Because that's what they were vacillating against in 64 AD. Do, do I lower Christ and go back to the way things were? Or we might say today, do I drift from the church and embrace worldliness? Or do I see Jesus Christ as the only ark of our salvation? An ark which I must hold fast to from beginning to end. If we understood salvation like that, that we speak about it in the past tense, but genuine faith perseveres, I don't think we would be so flippant with conversions. Look at our second point. Reputation of obedient faith. i got to tell you, this is where it, it kind of hits. Yeah, I'm great with doing the hard work. I don't need a lot of sleep. When you start talking about reputation, oh man. Does anyone else kind of feel that pain? The emotional pain is, is far worse than the physical pain. And it says in chapter 11 of Hebrews, verse 7, by which he condemned the world. Now, that doesn't mean that Noah sat in an authoritative, ceremonial judge position over these people. What it means is that his life and his word became a mirror to their rejection of God. That his very being and his very speech proclaiming the truth is what 
was condemnation for those who had said, I don't want anything to do with the Creator God. I think we need to imagine what a working faith cost Noah in reputation. I mean, I think we kind of get the obvious, but let's just go ahead and say it. Imagine the beating he took in his community. You know, he was that one crackpot who was building a 10,000-square-foot nuclear shelter in his front yard, right? I mean, what are you doing, Noah? Oh, God's going to judge the world. We're all going to die. Yeah. Right? Who, who would let their daughter marry one of Noah's boys? <laughs> but I love Japheth. No. No. You cannot go out with him. You can't even play with him. Honey, no more play dates with the kids with that family over there. I mean, you know, you can, you can imagine. You're at the park. You can't escape it. You look over and there's that monstrosity being built. It's everywhere you go. He's completely mocked. He is a fool. And he's a fool not for a week or two or a season. He's a fool for 120 years. I'm telling you, it's like the preacher of Hebrews is talking implicitly to this Hebrew church saying, and how long has it been tough for you? Oh, six months? A year? Let's talk about Noah for 120 years. But it was more than how he just lived. Listen to 2 Peter 2.5. But God preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness. Isn't that interesting? A preacher of righteousness. For 120 years, he had an evangelistic prop. He was a prop preacher with a small aircraft carrier as his prop. No, I'm, I'm serious. Think about it. He's, he's working up on scaffolding. How many times did he get the question, Hey, Nutty Noah, what you building? Hey, looks like rain, Noah. I mean, and yet what did he do? Did he crawl into a hole? Did he decide to work from the inside of the boat? Or did he take each mocking question as an opportunity to preach the gospel? Was he willing to be a fool, have his reputation tarnished in order to seize the opportunity to give the gospel, as it were? I can see him turning around, putting down his hammer, and using his scaffolding as a pulpit. Well, if you have 10 minutes, I'd like to tell you, since you asked. I want to know what those sermons sounded like. When I get to heaven, I want to say, come on, give me a little bit, Noah. Preach it to me. The Jews wondered this. Did you know that? And I found in ancient Jewish literature someone describing what they thought Noah's preaching was like. Faithless men, maddened by passion, do not forget the great things God has done. For the immortal, all-provident Savior knows all things, and He has commanded me to be a messenger to you, lest you be destroyed by your madness. Sober yourselves, cease from your evil practices and from your murderous violence, soaking the earth with human blood. 
Reverence my fellow mortals, the supreme and unassailable creator in heaven, the imperishable God who dwells on high. Call upon him, for he is good and he is merciful as well. For the whole vast world of men will be destroyed with water, and you will then utter cries of terror. Suddenly the elements will turn against you, and the wrath of Almighty God will come upon you from heaven. And you may say, yeah, but, hey, Pastor, I, I'm no preacher. What did Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say? Counseling, talking with someone is merely private preaching. Look, if we knew someone for a fact was going to get hit by a bus tomorrow, would you care what a fool you'd look like by following them around all day and running out in the street and shoving them into the grass? If you really believed, you wouldn't care. I think it starts with realizing Noah is reverentially obedient because he really believes. And then he really works it out. And once you get those two things right, he could care less about his reputation. And that's, in a godly way, what I'm so envious about. I want to be a fool for Christ. Paul says he was a fool for Christ. And he says the word of the cross in 1 Corinthians 1.18 is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You know the old Jim Elliot quote. He, who is, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. But do you realize he wrote it at 22 when he graduated from college? That's a man who believed, who saw it as real. This little Hebrew church realizes what the preacher is doing. He's asking them to be fools for Christ. He's asking their faith to walk, to do, to obey. The very thing they want to go back to, the old covenant, is the very thing he's taking them to. And even in the story of Noah, they start to realize, whoa, the original audience, they were also fools to the world, weren't they? What kind of people wander throughout the desert for 40 years? Those who are following God to the promised land. Amen? They're getting it. They realize it. So let me ask us a question. Are we fools for Christ? And I'm very serious. Are we fools for Christ? Is our life a mirror in word and in deed? But you can't just have one without the other. Do we seek to have or to turn conversations into gospel conversations? Remember the gospel? God, man, Christ response. Start anywhere you like. Turn the conversation. Are we the people who see that the gospel is either a sweet fragrance of salvation or the stench of death to those who are perishing? There are only two responses. I like the phrase, are we the ones who wear the colors of the king proudly or do we like to wear the beige of the world and disappear into the background? Does our life 
does our word, does our preaching make us look foolish? Because if it doesn't, then I would say our faith is way too private. Our faith is way too weak. Let me make a statement here. God hates mediocrity. He hates mediocrity. He hates complacency. He hates self-protection. He hates lukewarmness. Are we willing to give a true answer? Not a nasty one, not an adversarial one, but a true answer when someone asks if we're willing to stand against the culture and stand on Scripture? Are we willing to make a decision that will cause us even friends when we choose not to go here or there or be part of this particular activity. If we're not, we are wearing the beige of the world rather than the crest and the color of the king. Are we using scripture in our conversations? Are we actually teaching someone else, actually discipling someone else like you've been discipled? I'm going to start with myself here, and I wrote this, this phrase down. Gospel conversations are not rocket science. We have opportunities all day long. Ephesians 2.10, opportunities which God has prepared beforehand in order that we might walk in them. Sometimes the boys will be out on the driveway restoring a land cruiser, and I'll go out to check on them in the middle of the day. And when you know it, the mailman pulls up. Our mailman, his name is Jimmy. Jimmy the mailman. How do we know this? Because Jimmy actually stops his truck, he's a car aficionado, and walks up the driveway to kill about 10 minutes, first telling me what's in the mail that he's given me. You got your tax refund? You're not supposed to know that, Jimmy. Okay. And then he asks about it. He looks under the hood and he talks about it. Uh, you know, hey, I've got a 350Z. Can you all work on it? He's really interested. He's now in my driveway talking about something he's interested in. I'm not even using a prop that's, that's freakish like an ark. I'm using something he's interested in. All I have to do is say, Jimmy, you know, we've known each other a long time. What do you believe? Do you, do you go to church? Jimmy's Asian. You know, are, are, you, are, you, are you Buddhist? Are you Catholic? Are you, do you believe in Christ? Has anyone ever actually explain the gospel to you. I would love to. Would you come to church, Jimmy? You see, then my, my pulpit is not this here. My, my pulpit is the, the hood of a 1983 Land Cruiser. Moms, you say, but I'm not around other people. Moms, is your kitchen sink your pulpit? Do you take opportunities and conversations with your kids to give them the gospel, to even explain that judgment is coming, that Christ paid it all? Men in business, engineers, teachers, you got a lunch every day. It's 365 lunches a year. Are you using it? Are you using that plate at Chipotle to be your pulpit? You don't have to preach at someone. It doesn't have to be a one-way conversation. But preaching is simply heralding the truth. 
The great thing here is that none of these props are even difficult. But they are props, and they are opportunities. Well, look at the results of obedient faith. Got five minutes. It says that Noah, in Hebrews, became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. Noah believed, like Abraham believed, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Right. Shed blood of Jesus Christ, his atonement was retroactively applied to Old Testament saints who believed the promise. And therefore, Noah was given an external, an alien righteousness, a righteousness that was not his, and he stood then before God and avoided and escaped judgment. But guess what? His righteousness was also subjective because day by day he did the will of the Father. We keep talking about this. You know, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, okay, out of Luke. But do we realize that those who are welcomed in are those who do the will of the Father? You say, but yeah, but... God spoke to Noah. He knew exactly what the directions were. He knew exactly what the will of the Father was. Can I tell you, you've got more God's Word text than he did. You've got 66 books of God's Word. We can obey joyfully, like Abel, giving the best, the fattest of our flock and the fat portions, walking with God daily like Enoch, and obeying God, even when we look like a fool. Why? Because we know judgment is coming. And this time, it's not going to be just a judgment of the things in the world. It's going to be the judgment of the souls in the world. And only those who have an obedient faith will be welcomed into the kingdom. The results are that clear. So the preacher's saying, Quit drifting. Draw near. Hold fast to the anchor of your soul. Because those who chose safety, those who chose wealth, those who chose mediocrity died that day in the flood. And those who choose today will eternally die in the future. If I could just pick us up and dust us off before I send us out. There will be affliction. There will be persecution. Things will get more difficult. But Paul just continues to remind us it's momentary light affliction, and it's worth it. It is so worth it. Let me point one other thing out to you. Noach, Noah, means rest. Those who went into that ark made it through to the other side and they were shown the rainbow. God would never flood the world again. And they were given rest. But you know, it was at best even a temporary rest. Whereas Christ tells us, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 